For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Harmony of difference and sameness. The mind of the great sage of India is intimately transmitted from west to east. While human faculties are sharp or dull, the way has no northern or southern ancestors. The spiritual source shines clear in the dark. The branching streams flow on in the dark. Grasping at things is surely delusion, according with sameness is still not enlightenment. All the objects of the senses interact, and yet they do not. Interacting brings involvement, otherwise each keeps its place. Sights vary in quality and form, sounds differ as pleasing or harsh. Refined and common speech come together in the dark. Clear and murky phrases are distinguished in the light. The four elements return to their natures just as a child turns to its mother. Fire heats, wind moves, water wets, earth is solid. Eye and sights, ear and sounds, nose and smells, tongue and tastes. Thus with each and everything depending on these roots, the leaves spread forth. Trunk and branches share the essence, revered and common, each has its speech. In the light there is darkness, but don't take it as darkness. In the dark there is light, but don't see it as light. Light and dark oppose one another like the front and back foot in walking. Each of the myriad things has its merit expressed according to function and place. Phenomena exist, box and lid fit, principle responds, arrow points meet. Hearing the words, understanding the meaning, don't set up standards of your own. If you don't understand the way right before you, how will you know the path as you walk? Progress is not a matter of far or near, but if you are confused, mountains and rivers block your way. I respectfully urge you who study the mystery, do not pass your days and nights in vain.
May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the harmony of difference and sameness. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha. Our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati. Our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu. The perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. May all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas extend their compassion to the benefit and well-being of all sentient beings, and to our great abiding friend, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. May he find his true place in Buddha's way. All Buddhas throughout space and time. All honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, mahaprajna paramita. So Douglas will be giving the talk tonight, but I believe Tygen would like to start us off with a poem. Uh, so in honor of uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who we just did a memorial service for, a uh, great uh, poet who uh, inspired the Beat Generation and so much more and founded City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco. I just want to read a little, so, uh, uh, an excerpt from one of his poems. Poetry as an insurgent art. I am signaling you through the flames. The North Pole is not where it used to be. Manifest destiny is no longer manifest. Civilization self-destructs. Nemesis knocking at the door. What are poets for in such an age? What is the use of poetry? The state of the world calls out for poetry to save it. If you would be a poet, create works capable of answering the challenge of apocalyptic times, even if this meaning sounds apocalyptic. So thank you, uh, Douglas. Thank you for talking tonight. Thank you, Ty, again. So I'm Douglas Floyd. I am getting to be an old timer at Ancient Dragons End Gate. I'm just an old timer generally, I guess. Um, so this time the finger tapped me to talk. Um, and I wanted to talk about something that's really been on my mind since last November, and that is the difficulty of giving Dharma talks and some issues about giving Dharma talks because it's a lot of words. And at the end of each Dharma talk, I, I find myself dissatisfied about whether I've really captured the nub of what I was trying to say. 
Um, and I think I'm, I'm getting to the point where if I'm going to talk this long, I, I just, um, I sort of hope I've pointed people in the right direction without capturing anything particularly accurately, or at least inspired their practice. And, and you know, this is a, you know, the, the difficulty of speech is something that has, um, you know, a real history in Buddhism and Zen in particular. Um, there's plenty of literature in Buddhism about uh, the problematic nature of any ideas we have about the most fundamental aspects of the world. So uh, time, how, what is time? How does time work? Causation, how does that work? Can a thing have parts? Can a part What's the relationship between a part and a whole thing? Can two things actually touch each other or not and still be two things? That sort of thing. Zen has taken that skepticism too. And there, there are famous sayings about one that's famous is about, you know, not mis, uh, the finger pointing at the moon, a teaching which directs you toward enlightenment or toward Buddha. And, not mistaking the finger for the moon. So the fact that you don't get caught up in understanding the concepts and think that by understanding the concepts, you've reached, you've had a realization um, into ultimate reality. And then there's the sort of the classic definition of the Zen school, right? Is as a special transmission outside of the scriptures, not dependent on words and letters pointing directly to your mind, uh, see into your, see your, your true nature and realize Buddhahood. But with all of that, you know, I mean, we've had plenty of experience noting that there's an enormous amount of Zen literature that many of the great Zen teachers of the Tang Dynasty and certainly the people who assembled the koan collections were extremely well-educated, cultivated people who had in very broad um, acquaintance with Buddhist scripture and with Chinese classics as well. So, um, you know, I feel like I'm in, in, in good company and finding Dharma talks a little challenging, but it really came home to me uh, last November when uh, we had a lay entrustment ceremony, which I received authorization to teach and I invited, I mean, many of you were there, and I invited many very old friends and family members. And uh, knowing that these were people who had pretty much no acquaintance with Zen at all, I wanted to just make sure that I was speaking, you know, from a vital standpoint and not using Buddhist technical terms or too much Buddhist jargon or talking about, you know, dropping off body and mind or, you know, mind and body dropped off and stuff like that, where people were just going to be completely confused. So I really focused on three or four points that especially focusing on Zazen and, and really spoke to how in our normal life, we are so caught up in thoughts and feelings and desires and judgments and fantasies about memory and, and plans for the future. We have, live in sort of a shadow world 
in which all of that mental activity shapes our perception of what's going on in the world around us, what our life is like, and and really impels our actions, our, our, our thoughts, our speech, our actions. And I, I wanted, I, I, I spoke to how sitting in Zazen and finding gaps in that constant whirling of thoughts and feelings and so on, um, letting go of all of that is um, an opening. It's a release from a real constraint that we impose on ourselves with that thinking. And it, it, there's a sense of freedom in that. Um, and at the same time, there's an opening toward being here, right in this moment, being of this moment, in this moment, intimately connected, inseparable from this moment. And so, and that, that sense of intimate connection and being in the world is really, I think, a starting point for our developing compassion for others and, and gratitude and an appreciation for the support we receive from the world and what it brings to us. So I spoke about those things. And uh, when it was over, uh, my wife who'd been on another computer so that she wasn't staring at me while I was giving my statement of my Zen and answering questions from the Sangha members and then coming back and giving one more summary presentation that was the response to all those questions, I, I was wondering what she thought of it. And she said, oh, it's a beautiful ceremony, but it's oh, really pretty abstract, isn't it? And I just kind of, oh my God, here I'm trying to speak from the heart, <laughs> you know? And, um, and the response is, and I assume that the response was uh, pretty typical of what friends and family had to say, was that this, here's this abstract, bloodless, opaque, kind of business that has nothing to do with anyone's life. What kind of exotic hobby have you gotten yourself into? So I've been, um, I've been mulling over that um, since then and just appreciating the different approaches that we and the Zen tradition have taken toward attempting to uh, share this practice and its vision in common. And, um, you know, the Zen tries to have it both ways, even in the koans. There are koans that are very straightforward. So Jojo asking, you know, what is the way? Well, ordinary mind is the way. Okay, well, how do I attain it? Well, if you try to attain it, you just turn your face away from it. Or the great way is not difficult. Only stop picking and choosing. Stop liking and disliking. Don't have any preferences. There's that too. Well, what is, what is, um, what is Buddha? Or why did Bodhidharma come from the West? Jajo again goes, you know, that, that oak tree in the garden. Or even more extreme, no, there's the koan of Shakyamuni holding up the flower and not saying anything. That's his sermon in Kashyapa. Maha Kashyapa smiles. So there are all those 
all of those. And, and I've become sort of particularly inspired by, by one koan. It's uh, called Juji's One Finger Zen. And it goes like this. Whenever one, anyone asked the question of Juji, he held up one finger. That's it. That's the end. Whenever anyone asked the question of Juji, he held up one finger. That's the version that's in both the Book of Serenity and the Blue Cliff Record. There's a more an extended version that's the case in the Gateless Gate, Wumen Kwan. And the same ex extended version ex exists in the commentary, I guess, for the Blue Cliff Record. And that is telling the story about how Juji had, there was a young boy who was Juji's uh, attendant. So he spent all day around Juji, watched him teaching over and over again, the one-fingered Zen. Every time anybody asks the question, the finger comes up. And one day there were visitors at the monastery and they were with the young boy, the attendant, and they said, well, you know, what is Juji's fundamental teaching of Zen? And the attendant held up his finger. And when Juji heard about that, he said, bring me the kid. So the attendant comes in to see him and Juji grabs his wrist, pulls out a knife and chops off his finger. So the boy runs screaming from the room and just before he leaves, Juji goes, hey! The boy turns around, Juji holds up his finger. Suddenly the boy opens up, becomes intimate and understands. So that's the famous version. People love that because it's up there with the other the flamboyant koans like, you know, Nanchuan kills the cats with the cat in two if nobody, because nobody can say a word of Zen and that sort of thing. And I think that the thing, this is, um, this is the opposite of the problem of most Dharma talks, which are very words. We're talking about things. Words are always talking about things. The emotions are always about things. They aren't the things they're directed toward. And that's part of our problem, this, this um, separation from our thinking about the world and the world that we, we don't see, that we get caught up, we cling to our thinking and feeling, our judgments, our, uh, our desires. And those are inherently creating a split in the world. We're caught up in those so we aren't aware of being here, our comfort, our intimate relationship with the world, our view of the world gets narrowed into what I think about something, what I feel about something, there's me thinking it, feeling it, and then the object of my thought, the object of my feeling. And we're so caught up in the thinking that the thoughts and emotions and so on, whirling and whirling, or with the strength of feeling and, and the amount of thinking, uh, our attention gets sucked up into, into that mental activity so that there is this real divorce from the world. Um, and it's interesting how, how the Zen tradition, you know, um, in a way, um, giving a Dharma talk may be uh, just um, feeding that problem. I don't know. Um, at the other extreme is Juji. And, and I'll give you a little background about Juji as well. He, long before this koan occurred, Juji, was a fairly young monk uh, living in a hermitage doing solitary retreat. He was sitting in his 
hut one night and a traveling nun uh, named uh, Shuji, which is translated as true or actual situation, uh, or sometimes that's translated as reality. Shuji, without knocking, without calling, without being invited, just bursts into the hermitage, keeps her rain hat on, and circumambulates Gigi three times, uh, but without bowing or introducing herself, which would be traditional. She stands up and slams her traveler staff on the floor and says, uh, if you can say a word of Zen, I'll take my hat off. And Juji was taken aback. He didn't know what to do. So Suji uh, walked around him three times again. When she got in front of him, she said, if you can say a word of Zen, I'll take my hat off. And Juji couldn't say anything. She did it one more time. And he, the final time, if you can say a word of Zen, I'll take my hat off. He can't do it. So she just turns disgusted and heads out the door. And Juji chases her down and says, look, it's getting late. Why don't you stay the night? She says, if you can say a word of Zen, I'll stay the night. He couldn't say anything. So she left. And Juji, and Juji walks back into the hermitage and he's incredibly discouraged. He says, reality came coming and I couldn't respond. The word is in. So he says, okay, um, this solitary retreat isn't working. I need to go on tour. I need pilgrimage. I need to meet other teachers who are going to teach me the true way. So he packs up all his things. He goes to bed and while he's asleep, the spirit of that mountain, the mountain deity appears in his dream and says, wait, you don't need to go anywhere. Uh, there's a great Zen master, a great Bodhisattva who's coming your way and he can teach you the true ways. So in the morning, Juji uh, wakes up, he unpacks again and he continues practicing waiting for this great Bodhisattva to come. And the next day, other sources say it's a few days a Zen teacher comes, Tianlong, uh, and Juji is very excited to see him. And he tells him the whole story about Shuji uh, coming in to talk to him and sort of finishes it up. You know, you can just imagine kind of leaning forward and so go, okay, what should I have done or what do I need to know? And Tianlong raises his finger. And when he raised his finger, Gigi uh, opened up, became intimate with reality, and understood. And that was the basis for his practice after that. And he practiced his one finger then forever. As the koan says, and on his deathbed, he says, Well, I got this one finger Zen from Genlong, and I've used it all my life without using it up. And he raised his finger and died. So that's the story. Um, I mean, how do we react to this story? Well, I think the, the main thing to understand is the one finger is, is not a symbol. It's not a concept. The one finger is not about something. It's not saying, oh, everything is one. And it's not saying that's Buddha, that's Buddha, that's Buddha. 
It's just the finger. He's just there before thinking and feeling good or bad, right or wrong, like or dislike. It's just the finger. It's not one or many. It's before conventional reality and Buddha nature. It's just the finger. And that's different from what's going on with the attendant, right? The attendant is definitely about them. It's a response to a question. What is the essential teaching of Zen that, that Juji teaches? Because, oh, the, simple, the, the essential teaching of Zen is this finger. I can do this all day. And you have the same answer every time. It's always the answer is this finger. But the, when Juji raises his finger, it's not the same answer every time. Juji is manifesting expressing living this situation that he's in each time every time he does it it's a different time and it's just the finger it's not an answer he's not saying this is buddha it's just the finger it's the finger before buddha conventional reality one many the harmony of one and many there's no thinking it's just that so um we have to think about how we would uh, how we would carry that with us. Um, we know how to do it ourselves because that is essentially what we're doing in zazen. We're just being the sitting. Zazen isn't about anything. It's not about figuring something out. It's not something that has a goal. It's not a special activity. It really is just sitting on your cushion and not moving with your eyes open and breathing, right? Letting go of the thoughts. We keep wanting to find some meaning there. We keep wanting to feel something. We keep wanting to figure things out, but we let it go and let it go and let it go. Just being here, just being the moment. It's just the sitting. But how we would carry that out in our, our life is a little difficult. Dogen sort of carried this koan further. He approved of Chuji. And when he was speaking to his monks during his uh, Dharma talk one day, he said, well, would you like to meet Chuji? And everybody was quiet. So he held up his hosu, which I don't have. It's the fly, the horse-haired whisk, which Tigen has, but it's not right there probably. So he held up the whisk for everyone to see. He says, do you want to hear Juji's Dharma? And that was his Dharma talk. So I'm going to leave it at that. And I'm going to ask you what the, what the attendant might have done after his finger was chopped off to show what is, what is the meaning of Bodhidharma coming from the West? What is your original face before your parents were born? What is Buddha? What is the most fundamental truth of our existence? So someone, someone give me a word of Zen. Chokai. I think he expressed it pretty well when he ran away with his finger <laughs> bloody and screaming, you know, well, as a, as a example of ultimate reality, you know, 
the situation that's going on. Wade. I kind of feel like the appropriate response would be to get it bandaged up, keep it clean, make sure it doesn't get infected. A similar, similar answer to Ian, right? It's, it's expressing uh, the needs of the moment. No more. Again, do you have a, do you have a word of Zen? <laughs> I think he needs to hire an attorney. <laughs> Could that be a word of that? I don't know. Yeah, I'm inclined to say the, the one appropriate response is yeah, the wrong finger. Um, no, I, I want to, if, if I may, I want to offer a thing about about Dharma talks and words. Well, one thing that you said that really stuck really stuck with me was some. Sorry, I'm, I think I'm having that effect where I have there are waves, ocean roaring behind me. Is it better now? Yes. Okay. Um. I've just got the screen close to me. Um, there's something about finding a gap, finding a gap in the, maybe you didn't say roar of thoughts and words, but I experienced your Dharma talk like a roar of thoughts and words. Oh, that sounds bad. Well, <laughs> you know what I, experienced? I experienced a lot of different, you know, like a, like more koans and, and situations than I, than I could process. And I have I have a really maybe different thinking about words because because I, I work with words and I work with poetry. We started by hearing a poem. Um, I'm not so moved by this thought that words are words are these painful things that I'm trying to trying to transcend beyond and get to reality. Maybe I'd rather be like a cat and just kind of loll in words and and rub rub up against words like a like a cat. I enjoyed the roar of words, but my favorite my favorite words that I heard you say were, were uh, when you said finding a gap in the in the flow of thoughts. I I love that, and that will stick with me. That will stick with my practice, and I really appreciate those words. So thank you. We might say that. Poetry is is words that point to the gap. Yeah, I think I think Zen's pretty clear that it's not trying to get word, rid of words, but it's trying to live, use words, but not be used by words. Not trying to live through the words. And I, you know, I, I think it's clear that the imagery of chopping off the boy's finger is to, is the metaphor, or, or there's a parallel to to zazen, the idea. There's so many images in the literature of cutting off and cutting through thinking, and the idea of that Yuji is cutting off the boy's 
conceptual understanding of this fundamental reality. I'm not personally very big on the idea of cutting off thoughts. I experience Zazen much more as sort of seeing through thoughts, looking, you know, looking through the branches of the bush to see the moon or or setting them to one side, which is the way Dogen talks about it in Fukan Zazengi, setting the thoughts to one side by taking the backward step that shines the light within, setting the words to one side. Go. When I've heard the, the con about the, the attendant, it ended with a, a little different uh, sense. And I don't know if it's, I read it into it or, or I, I didn't read the original. I just, I'd heard it in a Dharma talk before, but the ending as I took it in was that Zhao Zhi asked his attendant a question such that the boy tried to raise his finger again. And it was the impulse to raise the finger with the finger being missing, which woke him up. And I don't, I don't know if that's accurate or not, but that's how my mind processed that. Yeah, um, I've seen that version too. I think okay. part of it is, is just to be clear that it's not about the finger. It's not that the finger has some special significance. It's just a finger. It could have, it could have been anything, you know. Mm -hmm. And there are, there are other versions of people, you know, as a master ask a question, he turn and face the wall and never speak. Just turn and face the wall. Um, things like that. Um, you know, you could chop off all the boy's fingers. He could hold up his bloody stumps and <laughs> with the right understanding. That and the other image that's rising for me is, uh, and I'm going to ask you the question, is um, what is it when reality takes off her rain hat? <laughs> Wet. Um, I believe David Weiner has his hand up. Oh, I'm sorry, David. You are on mute. Yeah. There you go. I'm, no, I'm unmuted. Okay. Um, Take down my hand. No, not my lower hand. Okay, there we go. I am not. I am both Zen and computer challenged. <laughs> uh, what's interesting for me? What's changed for my zazen recently? I don't know if this is just a word of Zen. Um, last fall, uh, Paula was giving a class on the Eightfold Path. And when we got to the end, concentration in the readings that we're, we were using, it said that there's two different types of mind objects, and then there's the neighboring mind objects. And when you're breathing, be aware of them, and then let go of them, and just be aware of your breath. And what's happened for me more and more is I'm getting to the point where I can just feel my breath and there's nothing else. And it was that type of, you know, learning that I got. It took somebody to teach me that. 
And even though I remember when I first came to Ancient Dragon, what, seven years ago, just pay attention to your breath. And I remember you telling me, count to 10, and then start over and count to 10 again, and start over and count to 10 again. And if you miss, if you miss a number, you know, go back to one and start over again. <laughs> just if you get to 15, start over. Pardon? Or if you get to 15. Yeah, right. Um, but that sense of, of just the point now where even I was thinking just the word breath, and that was the only word I was thinking of while I was breathing. And not always, but now more times than not, I'm able that there's, there's no word. There's no word. It's just the in and out of the breath and just being with it. And that has really changed. And, and I'm, I'm ever grateful for uh, Tygen for after, after I asked Paul about doing the full path, starting that class. And it's taken, taken me now. The question is whether I could do it in my, my everyday life <laughs> and, and take a deep breath and just be with the breath. But that that's something that's changed for me, that there isn't a word. It's just the breath. It's just the breath. And even the word breath doesn't exist. It's just the breath. We've reached a good point. Um, Katagiri Roshi, who was Suzuki Roshi's assistant, and then after Suzuki's death, ended up at the founding the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center in Minneapolis, has written, wrote a number of books or there are a number of collections of his Dharma talks. And his first two sort of reflect this dichotomy of how do we share Zen? The first one is called uh, Returning to Nothingness. And the other one is, well, you have to say something. And um, I, th- I think that tension is always with us. I've been thinking about how how it is that we are together in this funny Zoom world, and uh, it just occurred to me that I think it's a little more difficult to feel people around us breathing when we're sitting in the zendo, you know, and we're breathing, like as David was describing, you know. Um, Maybe there's no difference, but it's, it feels like we're more aware of the person next to us, not thinking about it, but just it's there, the inhale and exhale. And uh, these little boxes that we're looking at, um, of course, everyone here is breathing, I hope. Uh, but uh, anyway, just 
all of this, you know, again, fingers or cut off fingers pointing to the moon or maybe the cut off moon. I don't know. Um, we can't get a hold of it anyway. Oh. Yes, Paul. Suzuki uh, <clears throat> Roshi used to say that the best way to listen to his lectures is falling asleep. <laughs> but he never said, don't come to my lectures. <laughs> and I remember, um, I don't know, I, back in the old days at Sensen, maybe lots of times, sometimes even back when we had this, the temple, ancient dragon temple at Irving Park, there'd be people sleeping during Zazen, or at least it looked like it, you know, just sort of nodding off. And maybe they were listening very deeply. I don't know. Um, but one of my favorite Zen stories is about uh, Kobenshina Roshi, who Paul knows very, knew very well. And, um, you know, as Douglas was saying at the beginning, it's a funny thing to be, you know, giving a talk, <laughs> just saying something, whatever. Um, to help encourage everyone to practice. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a certain position of someone giving a talk and, and uh, you know, you don't, wanna, you don't want people to say, well, that was pretty abstract, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, well, you're hoping to convey something. But uh, Koven Shinaroshi once, when he, he was giving a talk, he, he would have pauses, you know, he would return to silence in the middle of his talks. And once he fell asleep in his own talk, which to me is like the, the height of really non-attachment to fame. Well, that, 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 that was pure fright. He, he was kind of scared <laughs> shitless. That's what, <laughs> that's, that's what the Japanese do when they get, when they get scared, they go to sleep. Anyway, it was, it was, it was pretty dramatic though. Were you there, Paul? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, was not, he was not big on, on talking, that's for sure. Mm. And then we, would, then we had Tatsugami. Tatsugami would lecture for an hour in, in Japanese, which none of us understood, and that category would translate it for an hour in, in garbled, garbled English because he hated Tatsugami, so he, so he, so he never, it, it made no sense. It was, it was not linear. And so we had to listen to two lectures in a row that we couldn't understand. That was, that was tough. That, that's, that's real Zen practice. Josh. I was just going to add a, just going to add a small thing. Some of this discussion was reminding me of the, the first line of the Tao Te Ching, which goes something like, um, the way that can be named is not the eternal way. And something you said, Douglas, about using words to point to not words, made me think of that uh, that text. So he's using, you know, the, the author, uh, Tzu, is using words to, you know, point to something that can't really be talked about. But yet, at the same time, you have to say something. That's that's yeah. the important. That, that's the other side of it. You can't you can't say, "Well, I guess there's no point in saying anything." It, it's it, you have to have both sides of it. 
Exactly. Yeah. One account of, of the Tao Te Ching is um, that Lao Tzu wrote that in, in response to a request from, from someone. Someone asked him if he, if he might write down what he knew. And so he did. So, he, yeah, exactly. He didn't say nothing. He, he said something. David. Yeah. It's interesting we're mentioning words and, and David Ray, you may know who this was, I forget his name. Uh he used to be the poetry editor at Saturday Night Review many, many, many years ago. And sometimes I think we get caught up in words. And what he how he described poetry was just being still and listening to the words whispery to each other. Let the words talk, but it doesn't mean anything. It's just the words whispering to each other. And that was his definition of poetry. And just let that flow in that sense. And without trying to say something, you know, you know, we all, we all feel we have something to say. I know I do a lot of times feel I have something to say. I have to share you know, it's not important. It's letting the words whisper to each other and just letting that be. Um, and I, I think that that's something that's also important. Well, should we move to announcements? It looks like we're... We could do the four bodhisattva vows and okay. then do announcements. You will bear with me. I will um, put that on the screen momentarily. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it.